Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of February 10th, 2021. Yet another reminder of, I'm sure that nine calendar reminders you've all put in this week, that Valentine's Day is coming this weekend and you should prepare. Um, <laughs> How nice of you to remind people. You know, I try and I try and get people ahead of these things. Uh, this week on the No Film School podcast, first we're going to be talking about the film festival dealing with COVID that you might not have heard about, but have done wonderful things. You are going to be hearing about the new Forza 300 B light that makes us feel powerful in the online internet space. And we're going to have an interview with Matt Ritter or a conversation with Matt Ritter. He's going to talk about stonks and getting <laughs> the uh, rights to the story of GameStop, story which is tearing the, the story of stonks, which is actually apparently tearing wall street bets apart so there's so much drama there uh i'm here with george edelman editor-in-chief of no film school hello and kath tolentino filmmaker and writer hello and uh, this is the no film school podcast okay so the first thing we have to talk about obviously this was actually something I wanted to talk about last week, and we ran out of time. And a week later, I was still like, ooh, we have to talk about this. So, and I don't even know anything about it, so I'm learning. This is exciting for me. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy when you learn, George. You know, we were all – there were so many debates about what online film festivals will look like, right? Toronto famously did all those drive-in theaters where you could like – you know, last September, you could do a drive-in. I think there was one in New York and a couple in California where you could like drive in and do the events in your car and all of that stuff. And there's been a whole lot of debates about like what do we do to make a theatrical event experience out of a purely online thing? Because one of the hard things with online and the internet is eventizing it. One of the hard things, you know, like Sundance feels like an event. It feels like I have to consume these things now or it'll never happen again. Like there's a moment in time where these things exist. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate about like what it means to try and create that festival experience in a purely online COVID space. And the New York Times had an amazing article a week ago that I've still been thinking about a week later about how the Gothenburg Film Festival handled it in Sweden. Now, obviously, Sweden's a much different country than America, and it's it's a smaller population, so it's easier to eventize certain things, and it's easier to get the attention of a lot of people. Also, Sweden handled the pandemic wildly differently in the beginning. Movie theaters never closed, although eventually some of them did end up closing, and most studies at this point say actually Sweden should have just shut down more. Their whole like we're going to get to herd immunity thing probably just killed a lot of people. However, despite the fact that the, there's general consensus that maybe they didn't handle the pandemic right, apparently the Gothenburg Film Festival is killing it. So they did two things that I wanted to talk about that I thought were really interesting that people should consider moving forward. One is they continued to have premieres in theaters with one person allowed to attend. So there are these amazing like photos of like the 700 seat theaters in downtown Gothenburg with like one person getting to watch the premiere of the theater. In addition, they took over an island and they let one person go to that island and watch all 70 movies in competition. What is and they the had, like, bidding a nationwide war like contest. for that? That's insane. They're both contests. They're, they're, it was no price. It was like you just get like we're just going to pull names out of a hat because we're Sweden and we believe in chaos. Where's the island? <laughs> I want to know more about this island. Yeah, if you're going to an island and you're going to watch all these films by yourself, it almost seems more depressing than being able to take one person with you, right? I, I'm just like, I'm fascinated. It was like everything you were saying, this whole like explanation of what this is felt like really normal and, re and suddenly you drop this like, and then one person goes to an island and watches all the movies by themselves. I'm like, wait, record scratch? Like, what the hell? <laughs> how do you become the person tell us about that i mean it was a nationwide contest and it was won by a nurse who's a big movie fan uh and she was like you know i coordinated it with my hospital to take the week off it's been a very stressful year to be a nurse this is going to be a wonderful break you know my screening schedule is like half my waking hours i'm going to be watching movies this week but the <laughs> other half i'm on this island and i'm gonna like take these long nature walks so it'll be like nature walk watch a movie nature walk watch a movie which like doesn't sound awful. But it, it's just, it's amazing that it's an island because it adds, it's not just like a, <laughs> it has to be like geographically yeah. isolated, well, just adds this weird level. To well, it. <laughs> it's, it, this is Sweden, right? 
this is Sweden. Uh, apparently everyone in Sweden owns an island. Like I found out that yeah. Bergman had his own private island and I told a Swedish friend about it. And my Swedish friend who was like not rich was like, oh, no, everyone has an island. So it's I, like that's not a big thing in Sweden apparently. I actually spent a, a week in the Swedish archipelago a few years ago. And I often think back to that vacation because it was just so beautiful. Like it, I am, I am amazed at that archipelago exists and that there aren't more people there all the time like i was like one of just a handful of people on the island and it was amazing that sounds like a dream <laughs> yeah now i've this is making me completely reassess all my life decisions knowing <laughs> that people in sweden have islands and it's beautiful there and i'm like what the hell am i doing but anyway continue well it's just one of those things of like i'm not going to say i'm disappointed with what a lot of the mainstream festivals in north america have done because, you know, I know everybody is doing their best, but I was expecting a lot more weird. I was expecting like COVID happened and I was like, okay, what, what are we all going to do to get through this? And I was expecting a lot more like just zany undergrad stoner ideas of what an online festival was going to look like. And I feel like we settled on like a very normal sort of like, okay, we're going to recreate this experience and that experience. And, and we're going to have screeners and timing and festivals and talks, but like, I was just excited someone brought the weird. I was just excited yeah. that someone in Sweden was like, hey, what if we just let one person in a movie theater alone watch the premiere? So the movie is premiered in the theater. Sweden always has better ideas than us, though. I mean, I feel like Americans are just so overworked. We don't have the energy to think of anything fun. <laughs> That's true. Two years of parental leave really gives you a lot of time to think of good stuff. Exactly. Oh, man. <laughs> On the flip side, Sweden handled the pandemic just as badly as we did. I mean, in their defense, at least it was a choice. It, it was a choice. It was like, we're going to do this and just eat the death. Whereas <laughs> we're like pretending that people weren't going to die by doing it the way we did. They're like, oh, no, people are going to die and we're just going to accept that. It was what, it was very Swedish of them. Yeah, you're right. Sweden does bring a lot of creativity to the table. I don't know. I just hope that like there's more oddity in the next couple of years because I think festivals are going to stay partially online for a while. I think eventually we'll get back to certain festivals being like, no, you have to come to Park City. That's the point. But like for the least two or three years, as we slowly recover from this, there's going to be some weird hybrid element. And I hope that hybrid element stays interesting. Like what if they t partnered with AMC and one person in every city got to see every premiere? So it's like, you know, a thousand people worldwide are watching it, but one's in Cleveland, one's in New York, one's in Dallas. Yeah. And you're all there. To, and you're like, and you know, it's all at the same time. Like, that's a Swedish idea. That's sweeting it, as they would say in that movie, Be Kind Rewind, that no one saw. <laughs> you know, I, what I would just say, though, about that is that this is going to sound like cynical, maybe come off the wrong way, but... That is not a financially motivated idea. And I think that, you know, as, as Kat what, said- What, one person in a movie theater is not going to pay the rent for the and movie I think, theater? I think the or problem- Or justify the heating bill? <laughs> I think that, I, I hate to say it, but I do feel like we get it beaten into our minds, certainly by the time you reach my age, but probably much earlier, that almost anything that's going to fly out here in our culture- it's going to have to have like, but where is the money going to like, where does the money go and who does it come from? And how, why is it going to play in Kansas, as they used to say, or like, and it and it does. I think it, we could really talk about how it waters down our creativity. It, it hampers our like, because it's always the you're you're browbeaten by it. You're just like, oh, yeah, no one will go to that. Or like, that's not good. There's not enough guaranteed butts in the seats at the theaters and all that. And I think that that like that's why that's such a creative, weird idea of like, let's just send one person to an island to watch all these movies. It's like to benefit what exactly like in terms of money, because that's the way we see it. It's just like that's such a weird use of resources. But then again, hey, Sweden, that's not how they they operate. And this was know? one festival, right? It Like it was this yeah. one fest. OK, so it wasn't like a, a national Swedish uh, plan. It was like one one festival director that came up with this idea. I think that there's room. Like there are plenty of weird festivals in the U.S. that could that still have time to innovate. Absolutely. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw a bucket of cold water on it and just say in the U.S. a lot of festivals are a money grab because they make money 
by getting submissions, by working with local partners, by bringing in something to an economy. I mean, I, as even as an indie filmmaker, when I went to a couple smaller festivals, it was clear that so much of what was churning that festival was like deals at a local bar or at a restaurant or an event here or a screening house or a, how many people are in town for it and where they're going and spending their money while they're here. And that, that model... I think supersedes that. I just, I don't know that there are people, I, I agree there could be or should be, but I don't want to like Andy Rooney it for too long, but I just think that there's a, that means grumpy old man rant for those who don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But like that, I just feel like there's too many assumptions uh, or too many, too much interest in, in it for other reasons. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like, you need, you need the ability to look at this 700-seat Thor Johnson Theater or whatever the name is. I'm sure I just offended whoever the theater is actually <laughs> named after. And be like, okay, it's going to cost me $2,000 to heat this for the movie screening. Because a room that big probably costs $2,000 to turn the heat on for a day. And I'm going to do that for one person who only paid $7 for a ticket because we drew their name out of the hat. Because... I like the concept of one person at a movie premiere alone. But like George, like, here's like you have to be willing to do that. They, mu there must have been a buy-in for this contest, right? Like you probably had to pay. Ah, like, you're right. You probably had to pay some, some forty bucks, fifty bucks in Swedish money to be part to be considered. I wonder how much because it, it, it. I I assumed you're you're right. I assumed it would be something like a lotto ticket. Like it would be like something that a lot of people can get on the low for the big reward. Sure. But maybe you're right. Maybe it was a bigger buy. -in. I mean, either way, and maybe there's sponsors. I, I'm sure there's ways to monetize it. It's just, I think that when I hear the idea of like, what are the creative fun things we can do with festivals? I just want to, as long as we're on the topic, just hammer that. I think that the, I said it last week, I've said it this whole time. I think the virtual festival thing is amazing. I think there's ways to keep it going even once you have people who are in Park City or wherever. And I 100% think people will want to be back there because so much of it is about being in the place and partying and networking. But just in terms of no film school coverage alone, which is the lens through which I see so much of this, we did more and access was easier and it seems like such a great way to bring the content that people are creating to the audiences around the world to have an online component to a festival. I'm so in favor of it. So I just want to take the moment to say creative or stale, however you do it, I think it's a great thing. I will add it's cool when festivals have like a defining feature that makes you remember them. Like, the, this, you know, I will always remember this Göteborg Film Festival. Is that what it's called? <laughs> oh, I will too. Yeah, because of this, <laughs> and like, there's a, there's another. I always like to bring up Drunk Film Festival or Drunken Film Festival in Oakland, where the if you're a short film that wins the best of your category, the prize is you get a VHS copy of your film with a custom designed cover, like poster cover, which. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. Like that enough is like, oh, I will definitely submit to that festival every time because that just sounds so cool. I mean, I I find that is every time we talk about what, what can happen and festivals getting creative, like there's so much cool stuff that could be done that could engage people, audiences, but also filmmakers, but also film goers that I don't know is done. I don't know why people don't try more stuff, but I love the spirit of it. Not to poo-poo it by saying like, but yeah, where does the I think there's so many ways to make money doing it and have it be creative. I agree. This is a very cool thing. All right. Up next, we have a, a quickie little tech chat, which is the new Forza 300B Lite. Now, we don't cover every new LED that comes out because many, many LEDs come out. Um, we do like, this is a new light from Nanlite. We love their LED RGB tubes, which we've used in the past and we've reviewed. This is like, you know, it's the 300B is sort of designed to replace like a 650 incandescent. Like you're going to start seeing, and actually you're starting to see like the classic three light airy interview kit, but like three 300B little LEDs is going to be the classic interview kit soon. I guarantee you there's a film school somewhere already that has like a, you're taking out three Nanlites or three aperture 300s 
with you. The reason why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast today is because it is one of the first times where I was like, I'm not going to say that specific coverage on No Film School led to this, but I'm going to say that general frustration on the internet led to an innervation in a lighting unit. So wow. uh, the 300B is directly competing with a light called the 300D from Aperture. You know, the 300D has been a very popular light from Aperture, but like the main criticism, and it was one of my criticisms, but like, oh my God, when I wrote the article, I'm frustrated with this one feature, so many people, it was like my, the most popular thing people reached out to me on Twitter about for a while, which is, you know, LED lights have to have a, um, ballast unit much like you know your your if you have a pc laptop there's like a cable with a big brick in the middle of it they have this big brick which is where you mount your batteries and where you control it and everything and the aperture it just had a strap where you could like hang it on the light stand or sit it on the ground and like i like that aperture 300d i think it's a great light unit but like it just felt clunky it was just like so i'm gonna hang this on light stand and it's gonna like bat around and eventually break it just didn't feel organic. And then Nanlite has come out with their 300D competitor, the 300B. Uh, and it's it's very clear who they're competing with here. And they made their ballast and they made a nice little integrated stand so that it clamps firmly to the light stand. And when you do that, all the controls are on the top, which make it really easy to use and you don't have to bend over. And it's like such a clear, like they read all of the internet frustration with the old thing and they're like, we're going to make our competitor and we're going to address this thing everyone on the internet was grumpy about. And it's like, ah, oh, thank you for paying attention to the internet. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, how long were people, like, what was the time frame? I guess I'm curious in the community at large for complaining about it and like an adjustment. The 300D was probably came out two or three years ago. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess not that fast. It's not like this light came out last year and everyone was grumpy. And for instance, there the the other thing that's sort of similar to this is there's a lot of rumors going around right now that Apple's going to come out with a new MacBook Pro later this year that has an old style USB port and an SD card. Yeah, like that I is the big rumor that. from Minchuko. If that turns out to be the case, then Apple will have also listened to the internet because that is all everybody wants. Everybody just wants like one old USB port, a MagSafe connector, and an SD card slot, and it would be so great. And again, that's five years, right? Because it was 2016. So they've beaten Apple in terms of responding to internet grumpiness. So that's good. You always want to be faster than Apple because Apple's pretty fast. And then our next story this week, we have with us Matt Ritter. Hello, Matt. Hey. So Matt Ritter went on Twitter and he said he told the world the story of how he was chasing and nearly securing, and I, and I won't give away too much, the rights to the craziness that I'm sure you all are aware of involving GameStop, Stonks, and all the like, and our Wall Street bets, everything. It all happened a couple weeks ago now, I think, and it was you know all over the news. It did all kinds of crazy things to the market. And Matt is a writer, uh, I believe a Blacklist winner, right, Matt? I'm, I was on the 2019 Blacklist, yeah. Yes, and uh, which is amazing. And he went after this one hard. And we didn't write a post about it because we saw it on Twitter and we were just like, this is amazing. This is its own great story. And there's not much we can add to it except just retweet it. But uh, I, I think that there's so much there to just learn about. This is what it's like, folks to chase IP and to be a screenwriter. And I just want to, I, I want to hand it over to Matt because I loved the way he wrote it, but I'm thrilled to have him here to talk to all of us about it. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I noticed on Twitter, uh, screenwriter Twitter, people love those long Twitter threads. And I, a couple, I guess a couple, a month ago now, I wrote one about landing my first OWA open writing assignment, which is a whole other, a whole nother story, uh, which, you know, people really, it resonated with a lot of people and there was a lot of sort of education for aspiring screenwriters in there. So I thought after this whole ordeal, I figured I'd just, I'd just write one about my experience uh, chasing the life rights. And man, I got to tell you, I, I felt sort of like, uh, you know, a long shot at, at one of those big horse races. I felt like Giacomo at the Kentucky Derby. You know, I, I jumped out to a, to a big lead and I, I thought maybe I could, I could hold it uh, coming down the line, but uh, some of the heavyweight favorites uh, caught up and, and, and passed me there on the final lap. 
One of the things that's amazing, though, about it, and I'll let you kind of take the Charles and Kath and the audience through the, the steps, the, the hurdles you had to clear in the race. But one of the amazing things about it to me is there's a point in your story where you say, I recognize that this was getting crazy, but this is why I do this. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? You're like, I recognize what I'm about to do is extreme. But I got into this line for the extreme. <laughs> yeah, and I look, and I, I look at this career we've chosen as an extreme choice in that, you know, you can half-ass it, but you're really not going to get where you where you want to be. If you really came out here and, and you're and you're making movies and you're making TV, you did it because you want you know you want to you want your movie seen, you want people to see it, you want to be actually part of this thing. I mean, you can you know grind along and 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 write scripts and you know, kind of tell yourself that you're doing the best you can do. But then when you see what other people have to do to get things made, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and go, have I gone all the way to do everything I can do in my power to make this film or get this script sold or get the rights? Because that's what everybody else is doing at the top levels. The first thing I wanted to ask really was you saw the story and you saw it happening, and what did you do that was like, I can write a movie? Out? Yeah, so so first of all, just a tiny bit of backstory for everybody. I'm a former Wall Street lawyer, and you know, I was there working when the market crashed in, in 08. So I always thought, like, man, I should have written the big short. Like that was I was there on ground zero. So I always told myself, you know, if there are any other stories that are like in my wheelhouse, I want to chase those. And so financial legal, I end up, that's always something that I sort of have a bent, like the blacklist script I wrote was about a, um, a huge lawsuit that I actually worked on uh, about a decade ago. And so, you know, I, I feel like I'm always kind of looking for those kind of under the radar stories because, you know, truthfully, if a story is already kind of in the mainstream media, I don't, I don't necessarily want to chase it. If you look at like the McDonald's story, the McDonald's game scam story, or recently that woman who chased her daughter's killer to Mexico. I mean, those sell, you know, pretty quickly life right sell for, you know, high six figures. That's not something I'm necessarily looking to get into uh, a chase on. So when I started chasing this story, I thought it was an under the radar story because it was just sort of a financial blip. I had gotten the notion of wanting to write something about this kind of world of Robin Hood day traders. I think there's something fascinating about this generation that kind of feels a little bit jilted by their job prospects and career prospects in the you know post collapse of this past um, generation. You know they, they don't really feel like they have financial security, and I've always just felt like there was something interesting about these guys, um, just sort of the way they interact, and they're kind of a little reckless. And so I've been on that Reddit board uh, for a while, and I saw this GameStop thing going going a little crazy, but you know it hit kind of like Bloomberg, you know, and that was the point where I was like oh, this is going to be something. And I, I just sort of had the foresight to say, this is going to be something. And I immediately uh, reached out, I, you know, I did some digging and I reached out to the founder of that subreddit, Wall Street Bets. And, you know, I just basically put my cards on the table, like, hey, I'm a writer. And look, this is just my, my advice um, to any writers out there trying to acquire life rights. I mean, you're trying to build a relationship and trust. And normally you, you don't have to try and do that within like a 48 hour crazy period like this one. Normally it happens over the course of weeks or months and it's going to require multiple conversations and touch points for that person whose life rights uh, you're trying to acquire are going to feel comfortable with you. So I usually just lead off with a, a very sort of, you know, casual, I'd love to talk to you. I think this is cool. What an interesting story. I'd love to talk. And I just usually leave it at that. And that's what I did um, to this person. And he immediately responded. He's like, yeah, I'd love to chat. Uh, when are you free? And I was like, are you free this afternoon? So, we jumped on a call and I, I got his background about his life, how he got involved with the site, you know, how he felt about sort of this, you know, Redditor army kind of fighting back against the hedge funds. And so I was like, okay, this is cool. Um, let's definitely talk again. And he asked me what I, you know, what I was thinking. Right. And so sometimes I think you want to have a pretty, you know, a good idea of, of what you're, what you're wanting to do with this. Is it a film? Is it a TV series? Is it a podcast? I mean, there's a variety of sort of ways that you can, uh, develop a project. But I was in a situation where I was really just at my early stages of figuring out what this thing could be. It was a developing story. So I was like, you know, I'm not I'm not quite sure yet. You know, I, I think it could be a really cool movie or it could be a miniseries. You know, I, I just want to talk to you more, to be honest. I can't necessarily say what it is until I get to know you a little better. So the next day we hopped on a, on a longer call uh, and he, with his, his brother, who's also his business partner. And, you know, within 
a day, the story had already sort of started to metastasize, which already kind of made me nervous. You know, instead of chasing a story that I felt I had an advantage on because I'm, I come from the law business background and it hasn't hit the mainstream yet, it was starting to become a mainstream story that I felt like, oh man, the sharks are going to be circling soon. So I better kind of move this timeline up. So I called my agent immediately and I told him and he got, and he got really excited. Um, you know, after I kind of laid out what I was thinking, he's like, all right, we got to close this because people are going to start knocking on their door. So got on another call with them, kind of laid out our game plan. And uh, also at that time, again, the story took another sort of big leap. I think, you know, the Wall Street Journal did a big article and, you know, it started just hitting more mainstream, you know, like the, the Voxes of the world. And at that point I was like, oh man, if I don't close this soon, I'm going to be in deep trouble. But I felt like I had built a relationship with these guys to the point where they're like, yeah, we totally feel like, you know, you're a really, really great guy. And it sounds like you have the right background to tell this story. And I think that's important for life, right? You know, why you, right? Just because you like a story, what, why would somebody sitting on the other end think, hey, you're the person who's going to take my life and turn that into something on the screen that people are going to enjoy and relate to, especially with esoteric stuff. You know, why are you the person that yeah. break down this field, you know, whether it's like medicine or, or deep sea exploration or whatever the life rights could be, you really should think, hey, I shouldn't be chasing every story just because I think it's a cool story. That's that's just my personal opinion is that you're going to find yourself, you know, not having a great answer to the questions you should have a great answer to. I had a great answer for why I'm the person to write this particular story based on my background. And so they really liked that. And they really liked me. And, you know, I, I just, you know, from a, from a bonding level, like I'm a pretty straight shooter. I, you know, I feel like a lot of people who get those life rights calls, they get them from producers. And I think when you're the writer yourself, you do have a leg up um, because they're talking Hollywood speak to normal people and they don't always want to hear Hollywood speak. So at that point, um, I felt like I had a head start. You know, I had my team on board and then a day later, it sort of, you know, became like a nuclear bomb. And next thing you know, my wife's asking me about the GameStop story. And my, <laughs> you know, my, my neighbor's asking me about the GameStop. You know, you're walking the dog. Somebody's asking you about the GameStop thing. Uh, and you're probably funny. a little bit like, oh, man, like I'm on this. Like, I got to get it, right? I got to get it. I got to get it. I got to get it. Because it's like you, you, you didn't know if you were sitting on, on an oil but now you do. Yeah. Like. Right. 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 I was the first speculator, you know. Uh, so so now I call my lawyer and I call them late at night. You know, I don't usually like have something that I need done. I'm not the kind of guy that's like I need this ASAP. You know, because I actually when I was a, a, a corporate lawyer as a first year it would always be like 11 p.m. I'm in bed and I, I had a BlackBerry at the time and it would just be like need these hundred page credit agreement turned stat, which is my least favorite word. Uh, so I, I told my lawyer, I'm like, look, I hate to do this to you, but we really need this attachment agreement, like first thing tomorrow morning. And I need it to be simple one pager. And like, let's not be, um, you know, let's not pressure them. Let's not make it like aggressive. Um, so it was just like a simple one page attachment agreement. Like, Hey, we're going to develop this together exclusively for a year and you'll negotiate your fee, uh, with the studio or, you know, and I'll, I'll or finance here and I'll do the same. And so I sent it to them and it was clear they were excited and interested because they asked me questions right there, right first thing in the morning about the agreement itself. I kind of walked them through it, um, you know, because they didn't, they weren't really, you know, they didn't know how to read the legalese of it. And they were like, oh, cool, great, awesome. So now we're all like, wait, is this really going to happen? Because if we can lock up these rights today, we think we can walk this thing into a studio like this weekend. And all of a sudden now I'm getting like too excited. You know, it's, it's, it's like you know, you start seeing the dollar signs, you start seeing, you know, your career take that next notch. You try not to do these things because most of the time they don't work out, you know, but this was such a hot story. And I felt like, oh my God, I really legitimately could potentially close this thing. So, and then in the interim, my agent um, was like, well, how can we, you know, ensure that we close this thing? Because a lot of people are going to be calling him. And it turns out they rep a huge podcast company that I had worked with before and done a podcast with. And so they were like, look, we like this story. If you are, you know, partnered up with these guys, please let them know, you know, we are interested in getting involved and we're happy to talk to them ourselves. So I forwarded that email. My agent was like, you just forward them that email so they know it's legit. So I did that. And then, you know, the next day we're scheduled for a call and he pushes the call and I was like, uh-oh, that's not good. So I just called him 
And he was like, look, I only have two minutes. I've got Ben Mesrick on the other line. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, that's not good. Uh, you know, so he gives me like two minutes of his time. I explained the podcast pitch. He's like, look, we have to do what's best for us. There's a lot of, you know, big opportunities that we've been presented. We just kind of have to walk, walk, work through them. We're going to have an answer um, by Friday night. And this was Thursday. So at that point, I'm strategizing with my team. We're like, is there anything else we can do? And he's like, no, nah, I think you just got to sit tight till tomorrow. Um, so that, you know, Friday came around and I hadn't heard from them. And so I lobbed another email and I'm like, hey, I, you know, just want to kind of walk through this option a little bit in more detail. Um, the head of the company is, you know, down to talk to you too. Um, you know, I would just love to know where your head is at. And I said to them, frankly, I said, you know, I just want to know what matters to you because I'm sure a lot of people are offering you a lot of different things, um, you know, but maybe they're not, you know, asking you what really is more important to you guys. And, you know, I, I want to be that trusted partner that looks out for you guys. I'm, I'm like you guys. I'm, you know, I'm somewhat of an outsider in this town. And, you know, in that way, I was like, look, the truth is I need you. The other people can do this with or without you. And I, I think that is, you know, sort of the main difference. And so didn't hear from them. And at that point, I felt like, you know, this is like, you know, when you're dating and you, you know, don't hear. You, from got, ghosted. you got ghosted. I got ghosted. I got ghosted. Yeah. There's no other way to say it. I got ghosted. So go out, uh, have dinner with my wife. I'm kind of bummed. She's like, look, you gave it your best shot. You know, my agent was like, look, the truth is you shouldn't even have gotten this far. You know, for a story that is. <laughs> I mean, I guess big. it's good, but it's also, a, that's such an agent. Thing. That's such an agent <laughs> slap in my face. And look, the truth is I have, I have a great deal of confidence in myself and I don't feel that I'm the underdog. I mean, I understand the actual practicalities of where I'm at in this business, but I, I have the confidence that I am as good of a writer as any of these other screenwriters and that I will, that I'm, I'm at the point in my career where I'm ready to make a movie with the right partners that is as good as any of these other projects that are ultimately going. And I think you have to have that belief. You know, if you are calling somebody about a life rights project that you think could be an Oscar movie, then you have to feel that you're capable of writing an Oscar script. I Yeah, I would agree. I think that that projecting that level of confidence is critical, but it also people can tell if it's real or not. Yeah. And they pick and that's like the kind of that's like the secret sauce of a pitch or of yes. anything with is that if you don't really believe it, like people sniff it out. I, I don't know. I want to open up to Kath and Charles, like if you guys have specific questions or thoughts about Matt's story. I you know, to me that there's so much in it about what the pursuit is like and how to reconcile with the realities, but also like these little lessons, like you really have to believe, like go full bore and believe that you, you can. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I just want to end it with the craziest part, which was after I got home on that Friday night, my agent, I called him, it was like 11 o'clock at night. He's like, why don't you just fly to Mexico? Cause he lives in Mexico city. And I, we were kind of laughing about it. And I talked about it with my wife. She's like, just go. She's like, what do you have to lose? She's like, this is the biggest opportunity of your life. Get on a plane book it right now. So I literally booked a flight to Mexico City on a Friday night for Saturday morning at 7am. And I grabbed my passport. And I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. She's like, I can't believe you're doing it either. My agent's like, you are crazy. And I love it. So I'm packing my bags. I'm in an Uber at 5am to go to Mexico City. And in the email, I wrote, hey, I'm coming to Mexico City to see you because I think if you're going to sign away your life rights, and you're going to make a deal, you're going to be in bed with somebody for years. Um, it should be somebody that you've actually met and shook hands with. So I'm in the Uber, 6 a, you know, 5.30 a.m., and I get an email back from him, and it was like, holy cow, man, I'm so impressed. That is so amazing, and I'm so flattered. But my wife and I are actually out of town for the next three days on vacation, so I'd love to see you when you get back, which was brutal. I don't necessarily know if that even happened. I don't know if he was actually out of the country or if he was just being polite. But then his brother set up a call with me, and long story short, is he ghosted me, and then I finally saw, started seeing one deadline article after another, and I knew the whole thing was dead. Did you have a, Did you have a nice time in Mexico City? I didn't go. <laughs> well, that was the funniest part. He was like, "Well, if you're still there on Tuesday, let's hang out." And I was like, after I saw these articles come out, I'm like, "Does this guy think I'm just gonna hang out in Mexico City right now? Like, <laughs> what? Like, what am I gonna go do in Mexico City right now?" I, I mean, Mexico City is beautiful. Well, actually, then, it is, like, yeah. well, then my wife and I discussed whether she wanted to come and meet me down in Mexico City. We make a trip out of it. But also, mind you, this is during COVID. <laughs> that's a good. Yeah, that's like a really that's good. Fair. 
Yeah, I, I just that that was I'm glad you tacked that in because that was the part where I said earlier where you were like, I do this. This is why I do this is because, you know, I'm going to chase it. And this is the industry. But Charles and Kath, like, do you guys have anything else you wanted to ask or add? <laughs> I mean, like, I just love I love hearing everything that you're saying, Matt. I, that last move of buying a ticket, when you think back on that, are you like that was the right thing to do? Or are you like, oh my God, that was so desperate. That was a hundred percent, well, both. hundred percent, I reached a desperation. I mean, that was a cologne de ou de desperacion. It was the only move I had. I mean, it was my only move. It was my only play. It was a Hail Mary. And by the way, they had not responded to five emails prior to that. So yeah, it got yeah. me back, look, it got me back on the radar. It got me back dialoguing. And at the end of the day, the only way to close it was, was if I had gotten to have another conversation I mean, look, I think it's a moot point because in this specific situation, I got sized out by giant heavy hitters of the industry. And I, you know, my agent's perspective is right in the sense that like, if this story had already been big when I started chasing it, he would have told me not to and he would have been right. Well, also in the end, the bigness of the story end up, ended up tearing the Reddit, uh, like Wall Street Bets, like uh, they ended up dividing into two camps and each of them chasing bigger money from different studios over who had the life rights. So like you... The, the real takeaway is that you had the nose to see the thing a few days before everybody else. Yeah. And, you know, Ben Mesrick was able to get in because of social network 15, whoa, 15 years ago. Oh my yeah. God. Ouch. But like <laughs> he almost insane. definitely, but he almost definitely had to do that level of pursuit of that story 15 years ago, like getting Eduardo Saverin to agree to talk. Cause I think that was the person that he had on his side when he told that story. Like, you know, even though he was coming with like the halo of the New York times, like you, you, you have to be sort of aggressive in a friendly way. The big interesting thing for me is like, there were two or three times where you were like, well, if this were dating and it is interesting that like, sometimes that pursuit, like there are few other places where those parallels line up so well, but like, yeah, you got ghosted. And in dating, when you get ghosted, you should you should stop because self-respect. But like, you know, you got ghosted, but you send five more emails because it's it's business. It's not dating. And like, send the five more emails. Like, why not? Yeah. yeah. I guarantee you Ben Metric sent five more text messages in 2006 or whenever he got to Eduardo Saverin to make the reputation. And by the way, and kudos to, to Ben Mesrick for winning this. And it was really nice of him. He tweeted at me. He said, I, I, I respect the hustle. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, oh, that's really it's, nice. Yeah, I think that 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 this is the the real thing of the story is that you you can control certain things, right? And you can't control others. And within the sphere of the things you can control, and this applies to life in general, but certainly to this kind of story, you can pursue as hard as you can. You can keep your eye out there for the stories that feel like you have that you're the one to write, and you can bring that to it, and you can chase it down and not give up and not doubt yourself, but you can't control ultimately what other people are going to do. Right. Like that, like, like knowing how to separate those things and, and still do all you can in your sphere of influence. Like that's the lesson. That's the takeaway. To yeah. Me. And I, I look, and I, I have like certain mantras, you know, one of them is just do the work, you know? And, but, but I agree, you know, there's, I'm, nobody's going to outwork me. Like nobody's going to out hustle me. And, you know, I, if I, if I believe in something, I'm going to give it 110%. These sound like cliches, but they're cliches because they're true. You know, they, they do work and, and I'm not like despondent because I didn't get this thing. I now learned some lessons about this one and, you know, I'll try and keep tweaking and keep going, but you know, ultimately you're going to get a lot of no's in this industry and you just have to be able to you know, brush those off in, in some way, you know, like, yeah, uh, no, like, I mean, it, the cliches are true though. I mean, I know from personal experience, I personally was like, for me writing and pitching and stuff, I was like at a point where I was like, I don't, I don't have the wherewithal. like, this is not for me, you know, like the mm -hmm. nose and the, and the, but, but I can tell in the sound of your voice that you are like, Hey, this is a crazy thing that happened. Like yeah. this is part of the tapestry of my work. Like you're not down about it. You're not beaten by yeah. it. No, know? I mean, That's look, I'm, I'm a stand-up comic too. So I'm, I've built up an immunity to rejection. <laughs> I like to say it's like, remember, remember in princess pride, it's like came powder. Yes. I built up an immunity to it. It's, <laughs> rejection i've built up an immunity to it it's uh you know that's that's you have to i mean i really do think 
building up your 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 tolerance and it doesn't matter your personality type you, you can't have an excuse of like well i'm a you know I'm, I'm a little more of an introvert and so you know i mean if then then you can't chase these kinds of things you know um you have to figure out a way to get out of you know the things that internally are holding you back because there are already like you said there's so many so many external hurdles and so i think eliminating a lot of your internal hurdles will help you flourish, you know, when in, a, in, a, in an industry that is, I mean, it's getting increasingly harder and harder, you know, I mean, I think with life rights, now that jig is up in some ways, you know, I mean, even more obscure stories are, you know, harder to just be the guy who's got, you know, you've got it on your radar and, and, you know, some big studio doesn't. I think you also might've dodged a bullet in that the world of stories moves so quickly now. Yep. That like, you know, it takes a year to make a movie at bare minimum. And like, there's a very good chance in a year people will be like, game stonks? What are game stonks? I love that you like, said that. There's a- do you really think there's going to be the audience appetite for six game stonk projects two years from now? <laughs> well, yeah, no, this is a great point. I'm glad you brought it up too, Charles, because I wanted to mention it. Like, is it correct that Brett Ratner's company is attached to doing something with it as Brett well? Brett Ratner's the one I ultimately lost to on the rights of the guy that I was working with, which is, you know, look, I, I don't want to get into, you know, what people are <laughs> doing with their careers. Everybody has a choice to make it who they want to get in bed with. I just thought that was an indication to me that this person, I felt honestly, in some ways I was like, oh, these guys really don't know what's going on in the staff. Yeah. I mean that uh, it's the, to read between the lines there. Yeah. It's, it's telling. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's going to, Cross I mean, uh, the finish line, but we'll see. Maybe. Maybe that guy's favorite movie of all time is Tower Heist. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like that's the first I've heard of Brett Ratner in a long time when I saw that story pop yeah, up. Yeah, you don't want to be the person. That, I didn't know he was know, still. Out yeah, there, I, I, I mean, my friends and I were joking about who was in the cast, and I, I will say that the names Bill Cosby and Kevin Spacey were thrown about. You know, if we're yeah. going <laughs> to be resurrecting with our. With our yeah, but I mean that th- there is that other thing, which is like the feeding frenzy happens, and then it's like, yeah, what's going to happen? I I just you know anecdotally, I was thinking about how I remember Escape at Danamora. Yeah, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. So when that I remember, oh, yeah. I remember seeing that story in the news right around when it happened, and I was writing at the time. I think I was actually an assistant somewhere at the time, and I and I had a manager. Like I was just starting out, and. I remember we were talking about it. I was like, man, that is so good. Like, how do you get the rights to that? Like, that's the one. And I was too green to really understand. But I just remember seeing it and being like, I can see how good that thing's going to be. Like, I can see it. But I remember being like excited by it and thinking this is possible and talking to my manager about it. But also I didn't have that like... I think that missing piece you're talking about, which is like, I'm going to find the, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to talk to the writer of the story. I'm going to get it. Like, I want to be the one. It was more just like, there's a big gap between recognizing the potential and chasing it down, you know? Mm. But the research is like, not, no offense to you, Matt Ritter, but the research is easier when they have Twitter accounts. Mm -hmm. Like it is legitimately easier. Like the escape from Myanmar guys, I don't think those prisoners had social media. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. You you had to bake them a pie with a nail file in it and send it to them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) For sure. But I mean, you know. The research is the easy part in general. And like George and Matt have been saying, like what it takes is, you know, having the confidence to go out and, and know that you're, going to be the able to tell this story and do a good job and like and exude that confidence which i think it does take a long time to get to that place for a lot of people you know yeah i mean look i've been grinding out here i mean i gave up yeah. my my law career i mean it's been 11 years since i've been out here and i, I look I'm, I'm not just like hey you should just chase life rights i actually am a still a huge believer in original ideas i mean we're taking out two big original specs that i wrote and you know i feel more in control of those I mean, and that is always going to be what demonstrates to people your capacity because you don't have to wait for the, you know, like that's where you, that's where you flex your muscles as a writer. Yeah. I have a question for, for novice writers or not novice writers, but those who are interested in getting life rights and maybe this is new to them. Like, do you have to have an agent and a lawyer to go out and try and get life rights or is this something that you can do? 
by yourself? So I would say, again, this is just one person's opinion. It's you can, you can have a one page attachment agreement, very simple. I mean, you can pull it off of, you know, any number of sources on the internet and you could do that and you don't need a lawyer or an agent or manager. The issue I think again becomes, I forget who just mentioned it, but you know, a bit of this is a credibility question, right? Even if this person knows nothing about Hollywood, you know, if they ask you a couple of questions about what you've done and you don't have anything there, you're just going to be, it's going to be hard, you know, but again, if it's a sort of like a smaller story that, you know, nobody's chasing, there's a decent chance. Look, I've, I, my first optioning of a life rights thing, I did not have any of those things. I didn't, it was, um, and, and it ended up being a pilot that got me my manager. So maybe this is, is a useful um, anecdote for novice writers. I, I found a story about a law firm that collapsed because of a Ponzi scheme in the 80s. And I read a couple of books about it. And I found out that one of the people who had written the books was the founder of the firm. And it was a story that kind of was a blip. It, you know, it had no sort of, it wasn't in the news. It was just something that I found on a list of law firm collapses in history. And that was the only one I didn't know. So I did the same thing that I did now. You know, I emailed the guy, I said, wow, this is a fascinating story. We'd love to chat with you sometime. We ended up having three, four, maybe five hour long chats. And then he was, he was in New York. I, 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 my family's there. And the next time I was in New York, I said, I'd love to buy you lunch. He had me over his house and, um, you know, we chatted there for at length. And I said, you know, I would love to try to turn this into something. And he said, that would be amazing. You know, and he was in his eighties and you know, nobody had come knocking in years and years, maybe 20 years ago, somebody come knocking. And so I just hired, um, even though I am a lawyer, I had, I, I hired a lawyer just on a one-off basis, paid him a couple hundred bucks to draft an attachment agreement. And I got the attachment agreement. And then I ended up just writing the pilot. And because the pilot was really good, plus I had the life rights, I think those two things helped me get my first manager. That is such a cool story. That is like, I feel like I've learned so much from you telling me that just now because like there, I see stories in the news and I'm like, wow, I would really love to do something with that. But I feel a lack of confidence because I don't have, you know, a team that, that I can point to and say, yes, I'm experienced. But I have a friend, a uh, filmmaker that I met on the circuit who um, has only ever made short films, doesn't have an agent, doesn't have a lawyer, read a Stephen King short story that he loved and somehow just like got the rights to that by calling up his agent and saying, Hey, I really like this. No one's, you know, no one's made anything out of it. Can I give you some small sum of money and turn it into a short film? I love that. I love those Stephen King ones. I mean, it's like, man, how many stories has he, uh, you know, let a young writer flourish with? Yeah. Oh, we, yeah. And that's for everybody to know, like he goes out of his way to do that. Um, so he's a, like, he wants to do that. Yeah. But I think the lesson also is that you just don't know if Stephen King is willing to do that. Think about how many other interesting stories there are out there and just for fear that you don't have credits. But again, I think if you don't have credits, then go to the other bucket, right? Why am I the person to write this? I think if you can convince somebody on a human level and connect with them on that level and show them a degree of talent, hey, like maybe I'm an up and coming writer. I think there's also something to that. You know, I'm an up and coming writer. I'm hungry. You can show pa like passion. In my mind, there's, you know, I don't know what the percentage is for what a person on the other end sees when they want to acquire life rights. I think for a story like this, you know, the guy I was trying, he was looking at money and he was looking at, you know, hey, the track record of people. But I think for smaller stories, I think they're looking at your passion and, you know, your connection to the story. I think those are just as important. Yeah. I want to add also to that, that I, I was reading a book recently and I thought, I wonder who, ha I'm sure someone has the rights. This is great. Not that I'm pursuing it, but I was like, I wonder. And I did a little Googling and I found the author's personal blog and they wrote something like eight years ago about how Hollywood came knocking and they gave the rights and there was a name attached and this was eight years ago and they were still waiting. And it's like, so a lot of times what happens is like people come in and swoop in the rights, but authors and life and people who have life rights that they might end up optioning, they know that there's the, there's development hell. They may be more excited about a person who has, as you say, the other bucket than about the just limbo forever. Like, yeah, there might one day, I mean, star names are enticing. You can't always beat that, but maybe they're just like, oh, if you really want to do like an indie with my idea and, and you're passionate and you're going to make it happen, maybe that's for some writers and people more exciting than, you know, just existing in limbo forever, which countless 
projects do. Can I back that up? I 100% agree, and I can back it up anecdotally with another story. So I was trying to get the life rights on a just a really cool architectural story, and the writer is pretty successful in the novel writing world. And I, you know, I figured like oh, I'm not going to get it, but again, I, I did something a little crazy. I flew to Philly and I told him that I would happen to be in Philly. Um, just because. Hey, this is a pattern. This is a pattern. I just, you know, I just remembered that I had done this once before. That's kind of nuts. I actually, this is the second time I did this. I'm the guy that just shows up at your house. <laughs> this is a little, maybe this is not so great. <laughs> no, so, so, so actually, he had had a prior project in development on this, and sometimes they've already had Hollywood come knocking, like you said, but he had never seen a script, and I think too. If you're the writer, you have that advantage where you can actually look them in the eye and say, look, here's one thing I can promise you. I can promise you I'm going to write this. You know, they, they sometimes sign away the rights and they've never, they never even see it get to that first step, that script, right? God, that's, that's crazy. I hadn't even considered that. But just saying to somebody like, I will write you the script. You will see it. Yeah. You can tell me what you think. Yeah. <laughs> like instead of just, I'll give you a name of a movie star right. who would be in it. Right. Ever because, in by years. the way, a lot of people have had that experience where a producer comes and said, I can get this person. I, and then a minute, for a minute, they have that person attached. And then it's eight years later. Whereas you can go, look, I will collaborate with you. I will be a partner with you. Let's yeah. move the ball forward on this together. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Where, where can people find you? Yeah, you, you can find me on Matt Ritter one Twitter, Instagram, and you know, as I said, I, I won my first big OWA. So hopefully, that movie will be coming out uh, later on this year. I've got a documentary called Tasteless uh, that is out on Amazon. It's about the history of comedy. I have an album called Forty Year Old Virgin, which Forty um, Year Old Virgin, which was also now usurped by a really good Sundance film that's probably going to win an Oscar. So maybe that'll send more people to my album. <laughs> <laughs> little accidental SEO. Yeah, there. yeah, a little accidental SEO. No problem with that. I'm Kath Tolentino, filmmaker, programmer at a couple festivals. And uh, you can find my short film, Parachute, on Short of the Week. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at parachute.film. Yeah, see you guys soon. I'm on the internet at Charles Hayne, Twitter, Instagram, all the things. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Find everything we talked about and more at nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on Twitter at No Film School. Like us on Facebook. No Film School is the Facebook page. And check out what we're doing on the site. 